I often ask people, what's the single most important characteristic of success? Not the company itself, but the people in the company. Sometimes people will say cerebral, intellect, smarts. They might say personality, experience, education. And those aren't bad answers, but they're not the right answer. The right answer is resiliency, your ability to overcome adversity. And adversity is fraught with failure. So who do you want in the trench next to you? You want the smartest guy or the guy that always finds the finish line, who always figures out how to get the job done? Downtown Greenville, South Carolina is bustling with activity today. Everyone seems to walk around as if they're all in on a little happy secret. But the secret is getting out. As the city's tagline suggests, everyone's talking about it. Greenville blends small-town southern charm with big-city hustle. People magazine called it the next big small town, and Travel and Leisure placed it on the 2018 Top 50 Best Places to Visit in the World. It's also America's fourth fastest-growing city and home to Chartspan, one of the fastest-growing startups in the South. Chartspan helps doctors manage compliance and care coordination programs with a combination of cloud software and human solutions. If you ask their CEO, John Michael Carter, about Greenville's rapid renaissance, he would say it's because they welcome entrepreneurs with open arms and support business growth with smart and timely resources. That's no small compliment from the leader that has overseen their growth from two people in 2012 to over 400 people and growing. They were also named a top 10 innovative company in America in 2015. So what's the secret to their success? Let's find out. This is Of Note, a podcast on innovation. I'm Laura Corder, Managing Director of South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. And I'm Joseph Nuther, co-founder of Design Sensory and Pop Fizz. We're talking to some of the most interesting minds in the South. They're hands-on, they're driven, and they're sharing their notes on invention, funding, entrepreneurship, growth, and so much more. So there's so much disruption in healthcare happening right now uh, and medicine that that I wasn't surprised that we were going to be covering some of uh, some of what you know like chart span some some of the successes or the big successes anyway that that were happening in South Carolina on this. Um, I think what was surprising to me was just how well spoken and articulate uh, John Michael was on not only the subject of healthcare but and where it's going, but also on business in general and how to build great teams. Laura, let's talk about Chartspan and, and what they do. Yeah, so if I had to really, really oversimplify the, the value that Chartspan has for the medical industry is compliance period. You know, we think about it, you as a patient sitting in that doctor's office, you know, for whatever reason you're there, it can be overwhelming the instructions you're given next. And while you feel like I should be able to ask all these follow-up questions and things like that, but the doctor's got a whole slate of patients behind him. And so anyways, Chartspan is that outside resource for physicians and for patients to kind of go back to and say, now I have all these next steps and now I've got somebody to help me along that way to make sure I fulfill all of those, whether that be, yes, a prescription or those follow-up meetings, blood tests, whatever it may be. I have an ally right there on demand on the phone that I can call. 
That's a great summary, Laura. Let's hear it straight from John Michael. So you may have heard the phrase value-based care. The concept is we pay providers for performance. To pay a provider for performance means you pay for patient outcomes. Essentially, how healthy are patients? This is a foreign concept for most doctors, right? They're used to living in a reactive state where patients come in when they're sick. It's hard to be proactive when you've got to react to a sick patient. In the last two years, the Obama administration and the Trump administration, because this is really a bipartisan issue, has said, let's really implement value-based care and let's put our money where our mouth is. Let's pay doctors if they'll operate in a proactive mode. So the average doctor earns somewhere between 40 and $50 a month if they will telephonically engage their sickest patients every month in a proactive mode, reaching out to them every month because they may have diabetes or congestive heart failure or high cholesterol, and making sure that the little things are happening for them. They're taking their prescriptions. They're going to their appointments. They're adhering to their care goals. If we can be proactive instead of reactive, we can move the needle when it comes to healthcare costs and improving outcomes. So for most doctors, that's a tall order. They don't have call centers. They don't have excess capacity of nurses sitting around doing nothing who can all of a sudden jump on a phone and start working with their patient panel. So they hire us because we do. We've raised $25 million. We have a 100,000 square foot facility in downtown Greenville, and we've become the largest provider of care coordination services in the country. We engage with every one of our clients' patients every single month to make sure that we're proactively helping them with the little things that can exacerbate conditions and turn into big things, costing the system a lot of money and making patients unhealthy. Who exactly is Chartspan's customer? Your doctor has to authorize you being in the program. So the way our business model works simply is I go out, I compel a practice, a health system or doctor to use us as their care coordination team. All of the patients for that doctor are eligible to enroll in our program. Our customer is the doctor, the provider. But the truth is, not really. The real customer is the patient. I can get a signed contract tomorrow from somebody who has 5,000 patients. We don't even acknowledge it. We don't even celebrate it around here. Because at the end of the day, if those 5,000 patients don't agree to be in the program, what's it worth? I don't really have a customer, right? You have a copay to be in this program. You want a litmus test of quality? Tell them they have to pay to be in the program every month. We have to obsess over the value that we deliver to patients every month because ultimately the patient is the customer. And if they're not happy, just like a gym membership, they'll unenroll and go somewhere else. So the genesis of the company was really a product of my brother. My brother and I started the company together. He's an 18-year practicing clinician, did his residency at Yale, very smart person, who just after years and years of dealing with trauma in the ER said, there's got to be a better way. And it starts and ends with the patient. If you go look at all the services and products that exist in the marketplace today, they were built for doctors to push to their patients. We really dreamt and envisioned an environment where we would start with the patient and we would really work with the patient directly. And so it was his vision. I'm a technology operator. I've built and sold a lot of companies. And so 
Uh, we like to joke that he's the brains and I'm the muscle. So I run operations in finance and, and handle raising capital. And a lot of the great ideas that happen around here are those of my brother. First of all, it's awesome to be able to work with your best friend and your brother every day. But I'm also thankful that that happened for me later in life. I think as 20-year-olds, we were dumb. We didn't know what we didn't know, right? I don't know that we would have been this effective. But we went off and did our own things in life and garnered a lot of knowledge and experience and battle scars. And so when we came together in our, our 40s to build the company, uh, we were able to leverage that knowledge. And I, I, I'm really proud of what we've built, and I'm very proud to have been able to do that with my brother. The story of the relationship between Greenville and Chartspan is a compelling one. About 2011, 2012, 2013, the big thing for a startup was to get into one of the top tier accelerator programs. And we were fortunate to have gotten into several. But there was one in a place called Greenville, South Carolina, and I had to look it up on a map. I knew Clemson was somewhere nearby, but I had never been there before. There was one in Greenville, South Carolina that was run by the Iron Yard in partnership with the Mayo Clinic. And most of the accelerator programs, frankly, made us feel like we were lucky to have been chosen as one of the top 10 startups in 2013, but not the Iron Yard and the Mayo Clinic. They made us feel like they were lucky, and it was a very different feel. Well, the truth is we had no intention to move to South Carolina. We came because we got into the accelerator program, but we fell in love with this place. After six months, wives and children came to visit and they fell in love with this place. And then something really interesting happened. When you do these accelerator programs, towards the end, you do a lot of these pitch contests, right? I call them beauty pageants. We get on stage and you get five minutes and you pitch your company. Well, I was at one of these events, and it was a huge auditorium. It had about 600 people in it, about 60, 70 venture capitalists. And I got an email that night from the head of economic development for the county, uh, the chamber, the assistant city manager, a couple of other people, and they said, meet us in our offices tomorrow. And I did. When I showed up, they said, what would it take to get Chartspan to stay here in South Carolina and not move to Texas? Nobody gives a damn in Houston, Texas, about two guys in a garage, but they did in South Carolina. And they told us that day they thought we'd be big. And I reminded them that we were just two guys in a garage. But today we've become the largest care coordination company in the US. We're one of the largest employers in the Greenville downtown area, something we're very proud of. And a love affair has developed between us and the city of Greenville, the county of Greenville, and especially the state of Greenville because the Department of Commerce has helped us greatly. So we're proud to be hiring hundreds of new people that will be employed here in Greenville and South Carolina. And so many of the challenges that young companies face, we've been able to get over those obstacles because of our strong relationship with both the city, the county, and the state. Many entrepreneurs often need more support for their business, but struggle to cultivate it. So how did John Michael find the support his business needed? I think it's about 49% luck and 51% about going out and getting it. The truth is I spent a lot of time networking. I spent a lot of time asking people for help. You have to do that. And then you have to be in the right place with the right time and be a little lucky to get that help. And that's really our story. I mean, we've been in a wonderful place in Greenville that has such a, a remarkable pro-business culture here. 
And so you have a much higher chance of succeeding in South Carolina and in Greenville, South Carolina than you do most places. But you also have to work at it. And you have to network on it. And you have to deliver on your commitments and promises. If you say you're going to hire a certain number of people, you need to do it. If you're raising capital, you have to deliver a return for those investors. And we've been fortunate to have worked really hard to have delivered on those commitments. When he talks about co-founding Chartspend with his brother, it reminds me of several themes from articles that I've recently read uh, about how more and more you're seeing a lot of uh, co-founders uh, starting businesses as opposed to the idea of like a single entrepreneur or a, a solo founder. And and it's interesting uh, to think through why that may be the case. I, you know, it's probably because the world's more complex and that bringing ideas to, to, you know, out of the ether and forming them require a lot more expertise. So so for John Michael, you know, he, he labels himself as the muscle, right? The, the real manpower behind um, or the business side of it. But at the end of the day, the business would not exist without his brother. You know, the, the technical or the medical mind in this case would not exist. And, and, and so it's not only is it to help them not feel isolated, but for the most part, you need that, that diversity of thought for the business to be successful. Yeah. And I mean, it's a bit of a divide and conquer situation for them too, right? One can focus on the technical aspects like you're talking about, and the other can look at the operational and relational aspects of it as well. And they're freed up to do that. They don't feel like they have to be good at everything because at the end of the day, nobody is good at everything. Right. There seems to be a, 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 a max and min point for that. That, 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 that sort of sweet spot is two to five founders. You know, any more than that, and you start to get too many cooks in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And then any less than that, the single founder, what, what I think a lot of people are seeing are, is that it, it's very lonely. It's very isolated. Uh, and, and from a psychological standpoint, you're going to have a lot of failures. You're going to have a lot of uh, uh, barriers to success. You're going to have to convince a lot of people of the idea. And when you're just one person doing that, uh, there's just a lot of anxiety to have to deal with. And when you have to keep picking yourself up from those punches, it's good to have a few people around you that that are there, you know, kind of on the same team. Yeah, you mentioned all the struggles that go into starting a company. And, and John Michael speaks of, of so many of their failures, but that's led to them being named one of the top 10 innovative companies in America. Being named one of the top innovative companies in the country was something we're proud of. But when you deconstruct what makes us innovative, there's never been someone for us to look at and say, let's go do it like them. Those guys are doing it. We were one of the very first to offer care coordination in the United States. I define innovation as the willingness and ability to fail. Because when you're willing to fail, not just give it lip service, but promote it, celebrate it, acknowledge it, then you empower your employees to go out there and keep innovating. The truth is, we only hear the, the positive stories, but the path to innovation is littered with negative stories of constant failure. Failure has been rampant around here, and it's something we embrace and we understand because we have to constantly innovate. We have to constantly experiment. And so we have failed a lot. We've burned through a lot of capital, but we're good managers. And when we fail, we fail quickly. And we dust ourselves up, we get up, and we figure out how to do it the right way. I always chuckle when I read trade articles or magazine features. It's always this positive story about somebody that got it right. Well, 96% of us never get it right. I mean, 96% of startups fail. As a young manager, I have countless stories of how I screwed up culture, how I didn't get it right, how I tried to manifest or architect it. And it was through those failures that I learned how culture can be successful and the role that I had to play in it. 
I don't know that I've got it entirely right. I don't, you know, pretend to be perfect. But through a lot of lessons in life, I think we've gotten it right here. John Michael and his team don't stop there in leveraging failure for success. We celebrate failure. Every quarter, we all get together, grab a beer, and we have a failure celebration where we all talk about our biggest screw-ups. And again, that's part of our culture, purposely. And it's something that I'm proud of. I think for me, I make a, a conscious effort every day to put my arm around somebody and say, nice try. It didn't work, but nice try. I also have to manage myself when I'm sitting in, in a conference room with a group of managers and we've screwed something up. Like any human being, in the moment, I might want to scream and yell and throw my hands up. You can't do that, right? You have to acknowledge, hey, nice effort. We failed, but unless you're doing something malicious, you are trying to innovate. Acknowledge that and make sure that everyone understands why the failure happened so it doesn't happen again and promote more innovation and the willingness to accept failure if it happens in the journey to get there. Though the business world has fallen in love with the word failure, the boardroom has not. The pressure to succeed with equity partners and invested stakeholders is the same. Still, unpacking how failures provide the insights that drive success is important. Try sitting in front of a board or investors that have given you $25 million and tell them you're going to fail a bunch of times. No, it's not an easy conversation. In fact, it's awkward at times. But that means you need to choose your board carefully. You need to choose your investors carefully. Sometimes people don't have that luxury. They'll take capital from any venture capitalist willing to give it to them. We have not, and we will not. This podcast is part of Scribble, South Carolina's voice of innovation. We celebrate and support the innovative activity across the state by connecting people to people. Visit ScribbleSC.com for exclusive interviews, tools, and resources. That's ScribbleSC.com. So we hear terms like failing fast or, or, or maybe a glossier way to say is pivoting every day uh, when, you, when you're dealing with innovation, but it, we have such a failure of it, of even failing. We have a failure of failing. And, and it, I feel like that starts as like, we're kids. You, know, you get a failing grade, that's never a good thing. You're called into the teacher's office, the principal's office, whatever. But we have to almost kind of flip that on its head when we become adults and you're entering into a business setting. And so how do you create the cultures that really support that and so, you know, John Michael's given all kinds of awesome examples of what they do specifically. Uh, it could be as simple as a hug. Like how, 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 like doesn't cost anything, isn't, isn't disruptive, just a hug. It's okay, it's okay to fail. Uh, but then you've got big, large corporations. In fact, I just recently read an article that a company called Nerd Wallet, um, every Monday morning, they have, they have this, this physical thing. It's a, uh, a wall. They call it their failure wall. And every Monday morning, their CEOs and their higher leadership come post on it what they feel like their biggest failure was from the week before. And everyone's encouraged to go place things so that everyone can see we're all making mistakes, but it's okay. Yeah. I, I you know, when you, you talk about the failure wall, uh, it reminds me of, uh, you know, in, at least in design and advertising, we, we always tape stuff up. And, and, you know, I think we, talk, we sometimes call it a, uh, we sometimes will call it a, a, a crit wall. And, and it's, it's, it's just interesting to me how much of a buzzword failure and, and it has become when, like in some disciplines, again, design, 
it's sort of par for the course, you know that you're going to have uh, initial designs. You're going to tape them up. People will provide criticism or critique to you. You will take that and you will iterate and you will continue to iterate. You might pivot an idea. Uh, you might combine something. You might substitute something. You know, that sort of scamper method of, of innovation. But you will go through all of those practices and then you will end up with something that you will then essentially field test, right? You you will you will throw it out there as the as the initial final design, if you will. Um, and so I guess I, it's so it's so cool to hear about that, and it's great to uh, to see society embrace that. I, do you do you do you wonder why failure has become such a buzzword though in the last like thirty six months to five years? Why has it just become such a thing everybody talks about? As we've learned more the backstory of the creation stories of so many, you know, successful companies like the Apples and Googles of the world, that yeah, failure was a big piece of that. So we've been shining more light on it, which is great. We should be, like we said, we should be celebrating the mistakes because we're going to find the, the the right answer, whatever that might be, along that pathway. And in fact, that's what's even inspired uh, something that my office hosts uh, our sketch room series is all about. That to be quite honest, that ideation process that you know we need to lean on others uh, for our states innovation community to find what else can we be doing? Um, and in fact, back in March, uh, we centered an entire day around CEOs, you know, not necessarily startups, not necessarily the big guys, it's just higher leadership. How do we support you? Or, or as, as um, one of our advisors put it, is how do we build a stronger bench of CEOs in the state? And I love and, and, and this big topic, Something eventually throughout, you know, we, we tend to just say failing fast, because we fail fast, you haven't used a lot of resources, time, energy, whatever. But now how do we turn that into failing forward? And I don't have an answer to that yet, but that's one that we're looking for. How yeah. do we how do we fail forward? Well, I, the, the world becoming faster and, and it's, it seems like it's also very easy now or, or certainly a lot faster and quicker to be able to see the results of something, right? You, you, can, you can get immediate feedback. The feedback loop, that cycle has become quicker for, for, for companies and people now too. So failing is not something that maybe will cost as much or you don't have to go further in your development cycle or your, your, your stage gating in order to start getting some really uh, compelling feedback that tells you whether or not you need to change your ideas in some way, right? Yeah, change is constant. We all know this, but we can take comfort in knowing we've been innovating forever. We problem solve daily. What is new is the rate. Or as our secretary would say, our challenge is managing the change at the pace of technology. And that's really what my job is and what other economic dollars' jobs are. So how can a company like Chartsman continue to thrive? And then how can we help them continue to innovate? What we have done here is innovate along the way. When we built the original patient engagement platform, we knew we would innovate. We knew change was coming fast and furious. We didn't know what form it would be in. We didn't even know who the president and the administration would be to drive those changes. But we knew for sure that that big ship of value-based care was sailing and it was going in one direction. We've watched and changed over the years and had to conform to new regulations, but we've always been a patient engagement company, but we've had to change to accommodate the way that value-based care is being implemented. And by the way, it's still changing <laughs> every year. Medicare and Medicaid hits reset on something, right? That dramatically impacts us. But I love that. There is never a boring day here. And innovation is a staple of our culture. It's in our soul. I think culture is the most important thing that provides the foundation for long-term success. 
You cannot manifest culture. The company looks nothing today like I imagined it might look. But as the CEO and founder, you can be a steward of culture. My job is to sit on the sidelines and push people back into the game. But I cannot architect the game. I cannot coach the game and tell them uh, how to behave. The culture is amazing here because we hire people who are diverse, who don't look or act like me. And I'm very proud of that. We have a saying around here that our number one focus is the patient that every day our singular focus is to delight the patient. That's not true for me. My number one focus is my employees because if I treat them right and I give them a place that they truly value being at, they'll take care of those patients. John Michael believes that developing and maintaining a deep bench of knowledgeable leadership is not just an important thing, but a priority especially in fending off competition from challenger brands. We're seeing competitors in our space, more and more of them every day. When you think of care coordination, you think about the clinical encounter between a clinician and the patient. But here's the truth about our business. It's highly complex. If somebody showed up tomorrow and said, we just raised $100 million and we're going to crush you, Chartspan, I would laugh at them because money will not solve what I know is required to build a successful care coordination company. You would have to hire most of my leadership team away and all of their learning and all of the innovation that we've achieved and the failure that came with it in order to compete with us. The reason that we're not just the biggest but the best in this space is because we've solved that complexity riddle. We know how to run a successful program. Any Tom, Dick, and Harry with a nurse and a spreadsheet who thinks he can go out and run a care coordination company will fail. And I'm happy to watch him fail because I'm competitive. And I know that we've built a company that scales, that's gonna have longevity, and it's largely based on the, uh, on the understanding that this is the most complex business any of us have ever worked with. We're not playing checkers. We're playing chess every day around here. And that makes this fun, but it also makes the barrier to entry very high for any competitor. Being a good leader is this mix of authentic optimism with a perpetual sense of being a contrarian. When I think about engaging with somebody and listening to them, I have two streams of consciousness. What they're saying, being in the moment and reinforcing what they're saying with positive feedback and yet being critical and, and being a contrarian in that second line of consciousness. It's a hard character trait to learn how to manage two streams of consciousness in the moment, but I do. And I think some of the best leaders have mastered it far better than me. I constantly edify myself with learning. I'm nearly 50 years old. Last year, I read 64 books. This year, I have a goal to read 70 books, and almost every one of them is a nonfiction business book. So I love to learn, and I never want to stop learning. I, I want to improve. I want to be a better leader. I want to inspire the people that work for me. I want to build a better company, deliver a better product. And I think that comes with leading with optimism, but questioning everything and, and subscribing to a constant, steady diet of learning. 
Um, Brad Feld has a book. Brad is one of the most pervasive venture capitalists in the country. I'm not going to remember the name of it, but you should search Brad Feld on Google. By the way, the book is called Venture Deals. Be smarter than your lawyer and venture capitalist. He demystifies the whole venture capital process, but I recommend it to anyone who is a programmer or a salesperson or a marketer who maybe doesn't understand finance because there's so many complicated things. What's a convertible bridge note? What's the difference between equity conversion and debt conversion? He makes it simple so that anybody can understand it. And I think it's one of the most important books that entrepreneurs can read. The Hard Thing About Hard Things, written by Ben Horowitz. After you've gone through a few days, a few weeks, a few months of being an entrepreneur, and you're probably dealing with anxiety and depression and remarkable stress, it's a book that will resonate with any entrepreneur, and it should just be required reading. It's a book I, I read probably once a year. John Michael left us with one other small piece of advice on how he maintains productivity. I think the challenge we all face as founders and entrepreneurs is how do we manage the overwhelming amount of work that gets dumped on us? Over and over, I hear people say that email is overwhelming for them. I have mastered email. Everything in my life comes in the form of email. Voicemails, texts, to-dos, everything filters into my inbox. So I only have one medium that I organize and manage my entire professional and personal life in, and that's email. And I've gotten really good at using that tool to be a highly effective, highly efficient, and highly productive manager. And it's how I can get so much done in a day. I think today I have 18 meetings most of them 15 to 30 minutes in length. And I can do that and keep up with email because of the way I organize and plan everything. I'm John Michael, and those were my notes on innovation. This has been Of Note, a podcast that gets up close and personal with innovative people so we can learn from their successes and failures. I'm Joseph Nuther. I'm Laura Quarter. And this is an original production by the South Carolina Office of Innovation and Design Sensor. Our producer and editor is Hunter Foster. Our sound engineer is Mike Deering, with original music by Matt Honkinen. Check out more interviews, our blog, and resource area at scribblesc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Ready, Set, Scribble. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, keep pursuing your transformational ideas. Next time on Of Note. The hard part is finding out how to tease that out of somebody who is naturally not creative or innovative. And that's what we try and teach. So just as you might come into a chemistry class not knowing anything about chemistry, we try and teach creativity within our design program in that very same way.